Hello, I'm David Oakes, and welcome to Trees of Crowd. This is a podcast for those of you who, like me, think our natural world is incredible, including those growing wild trees and living out amongst florid leaves. I get to talk with people dedicated to or inspired by our natural world. As you're well aware by now, over the past couple of months, I have been exploring the social and cultural importance of our native tree species. As such, I thought there no better time than the present to return temporarily to our normal format and bring you this bonus interview. Recorded back in November of 2020, you are about to hear from naturalist, environmentalist, and writer. Richard Nairn. Richard owns a forest, or to be more precise, Richard has lately devoted his life to extending and protecting a piece of ancient woodland in Ireland's County Wicklow. This is a man who lives a life surrounded by native trees and all the life which they support. Anyway, we will be back to individual native trees next Tuesday, and be sure to stick around until the very end to hear the tale of the most accommodating badger in all of Ireland. But until then, this is Trees A Crowd, and this is Richard Nair. In the depth of the forest, an old oak root, the pride of the greenwood there. O'er his branches the ivy her mantle threw when the forest boughs were bare. Oh, the oak and the ivy, oh, the oak and the ivy, oh. Right, it's a beautiful um, November morning. Uh, there was a gale force storm last night that unfortunately has blown away a few nearby polytunnels. But the sky is blue, the, the crows are cawing, your dog's snoozing in the sun over there. Molly, yes? That's Molly, yeah. What is Molly? Molly is a cross between um, a border collie and a Labrador, and um, the the grey around her muzzle is the the collie colouring. Uh-huh. Uh, but she has the sort of temperament of a, a, a lab. She's very quiet and oh, she's um, gorgeous. Very um, biddable, you know. She runs up and says hello to me when I arrive, which I love. Um, what what what's the bird I hear? There's a chip chip chipping as well. It's probably a robin. Is it just a robin? They're about the only ones that are. Uh, calling at this time. Well, here's an interesting fact. I was reading that Ireland has only 70% of the species of bird life that are found in the UK. That's right, yeah. I didn't realise that there was such a big sort of drop-off. There is a big drop-off in all the uh, plants and animals in Ireland because we're, for a number of reasons, uh, number one, we're a kind of western wetter island than most of britain and so we have a slightly different climate and number two we have a a, quite a a limited um latitude range from north to south but Mm -hmm. comparison with northern scotland to southern england if you think about that so you know we don't we don't have the extreme northern species we don't have the extreme southern species in britain there is the influence of the continent of europe and a lot of the species that breed in northern France overlap into southern England Mm -hmm. and don't quite make it as far as Ireland but one of the big reasons is that uh, we lost most of our native woodland um, centuries ago in fact thousands of years ago Uh and uh, with that went a lot of the woodland species and and woodland accounts for up to um, a quarter of all our breeding birds in this country so um, you know only a few of those have managed to to survive and creep back as I understand it, there's only 11% of the cover of Ireland is forest at the moment. 
That's right. And most of that, of course, is is uh, modern, um, fast growing uh, non-native conifers, uh, which are planted as a crop and usually clear felled within 30 years. Um, whereas um, the amount of old uh, native woodland is less than 2%. It's probably in, in the area of 1.5%. Of so what country. happened? I mean, everyone thinks of Ireland as the sort of green emerald isle. Yeah. Unfortunately, that's probably because of the grass. It's green because of its that, grass. Yeah. But, um, but where, did the, where did all the trees go? Well, um, it's a long story, and it goes right back I've to... I've got the rest of the day. So. ...to the, <laughs> the Middle Stone Age, the Mesolithic, when... Um, people first colonized Ireland, the first people, and they probably made clearings to encourage deer to come in and graze. And then they would have, you know, hunted the deer and other, other uh, game, small game. Mm -hmm. But it wasn't until farming was introduced in the Neolithic, which would be about uh, 6,000 years ago now, that uh, serious clearance began because uh, people could clear forest, grow crops, um, graze their domestic animals, etc. And um, that's when, when the decline began. So that continued, that slide continued. Of course, we don't have any figures or maps from that period, but sure. we know from the pollen remains in, preserved in peat bogs uh, that there was a kind of um, ebb and flow of, of woodland as population increased and decreased with, let's say, famine or sure. war or um, you know, climate change, etc., so if we come right down to, say, the Tudor times, 1600s, um, it's reckoned that there was probably only about 5% of the country uh, covered in, in old woodland at that stage. Okay. Um, and a lot of that was being pretty heavily exploited. And then, of course, after that, you had, um, you know, continuous British occupation up until the 1920s. How long did that take us to get onto how awful the British were to the Irish? <laughs> I didn't say that because <laughs> uh, when they came and um, took over a lot of the better land and, and established big estates, in some cases, the, the woodland remaining on those estates was actually well managed mm -hmm. and uh, they, they introduced the, the, the practice of coppicing, for instance, sure. which... Uh, is 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 a way of ensuring that you can uh, take a crop off the the woodland crop of timber, but um, have a long term sustainable uh, yield that allows the the woodland to to survive. You still have a healthy forest as well as having yeah, a healthy business. Yeah, yeah. In fact, we know that coppicing was going on way back in the Bronze Age when people were making. Uh, hazel wattle fences and all that kind of thing uh -huh. but it really came in with the um, big landlords so uh, not too far away from here we have Avondale House that's right, which yeah. was the home of uh, Samuel Hayes that's right who as far as I understand it is certainly in Ireland one of the sort of forerunners of modern coppicing for agro management he, he was and he wrote a, a quite a, a well uh, known book called Treaties on woodland management I can't remember the full title something uh, like planting trees and managing of woods and coppicing that's right that's yeah the one. yeah in which he goes into great detail on um, not only the, the the methods and but also the financial benefits to be had from growing timber and and harvesting it on a sustainable basis mm -hmm. so he was well before his time and then in in the Wicklow context um, the uh, Fitzwilliam estate which was centered in South Wicklow had huge areas, thousands of acres of coppice right across the county. But needless to say, when um, 
you know, competition from other modern materials, let's say uh, steel and plastics and so on came in, uh, there was less and less demand for uh, timber products like that for use sure. in farming. Um, so if you think back to a uh, hundred years ago, you know, most farm implements were made from timber. Mm -hmm. uh, things like uh, uh, tool handles and, and, and fence posts and, and uh, all the like. So there was a big demand for, for timber of that kind. So when you're walking around Ireland now and when you're walking around Scotland, Wales, England, wherever, you will see lots of farmed forests, whether by the Forestry Commission in the UK or I can't remember the name of the Irish Forestry Commission. Uh, well, the state-owned forest company is called Quilcher. Quilcher, that's it. Yeah. If we're not using them for building supplies and we're not building farming equipment from them, what's most of that wood being grown for? Is it exported? Is it paper? No, it's, it's used. Um, it, it tends to be quite low-grade timber. That's um, softwood that's fast-growing. Like Sitka spruce. A, and yeah, and Douglas and fir. Douglas fir. And a lot of that is uh, pulped and used uh, to, for making chipboard and the like. So it's pretty low-grade uses for, you know, high-grade uses like say making furniture and so on about 95 percent of the hardwoods are imported and uh, a lot of those would be from unsustainable sources if you like is that because we can't grow good hardwoods here i mean oaks are fantastic building material absolutely and no the the, the answer is we can grow uh, really quality hardwoods here if people are prepared to wait and sure. that's the that's the problem it's a question of time because you know you can harvest a stand of Sitka spruce in 25 or 30 years uh, to use them as telegraph poles or something but to get any decent timber from an oak you would need to leave it at least 60 to 80 years or 300 400 or, yeah sure yeah. <laughs> so uh, the reason I've come to see you and um, I'll let you describe where we are exactly um, is because you are growing your own forest or at least augmenting a pre-existing bit of ancient woodland That's so right. so where are yeah. are we and what what exactly are you doing well we're we're in east wicklow here um close to the village of ashford we're in the the valley of the river vartry which is a fast flowing river coming down off the wicklow mountains and straight into the irish sea um, and in one of the tributaries of that river um, there is a strip of old woodland which still survives mm -hmm. and um, I've come to know this over the years uh, living close by but for years I was looking for some place where I could also plant trees to uh, try and make up for the loss of native woodland in Ireland uh, to, in a small way but also to provide a kind of sustainable source of timber and, and fuel for my family um, well, we're in your woodshed yeah. right now. That's right, yeah. <laughs> well, I spend a lot of time in my woodshed um, uh, splitting and stacking logs. Do you find it cathartic? I do, actually, yeah. I mean, in, in ways, it's great to see uh, something coming off the land, which is then used to heat the home and saves us buying fuel uh, and is preventing more fossil fuels being being excavated and and even though it's a small contribution it's every, yeah, every little one, helps every little helps one man's contribution one of the things that i've sort of had to get used to having spent the last few months in ireland is the fact that peat is so readily available to buy as a as a fuel i couldn't think that there is anything worse than burning peat because it sequesters co2 so brilliantly and nurtures right. a whole load of biodiversity yeah. um but yet you'll see peat briquettes if not rolls of peat just available on the side of mm. most 
mm. petrol stations, which yeah. is very upsetting. Yeah, and you can still buy peat moss, of course, in garden centres. But that will come to an end um, within the next decade because um, the main company that, that uh, harvests the peat um, has committed to ending its production um, okay. in that time frame. And it's not before time because most of the Midland peat bogs, for example, are completely worked out. And uh, many of them actually, interestingly, are returning to woodland um, okay. by a process of natural regeneration. Well, that's good, I guess. It is it's, a it's good a thing. It's a slightly silver lining of a yeah. slightly yeah. murky cloud. But as you say, um, you know, peat bogs have this uh, incredible ability to trap carbon and to hold it there. Um, and once they're, once they're mined effectively and the peat is extracted, um, that goes into the atmosphere. Sure. Uh, whereas it may take the woodland another 50 to 100 years to to um, sequester the carbon and tie it up in the soil. So this bit of woodland that we have here, how big is it? Um, what was it called? And how did this strip of ancient woodland survive when everywhere around it is pretty much uh, farmland? The, the woodland itself is a long, narrow strip. Um, the section that you're looking at is about seven acres. Um, I only own half of that. And I was looking at it on Google Earth actually this morning, yeah. going, how are you going to get hold of that section there as well as the bit you've already got? <laughs> well, I have enough to cope with at the moment. <laughs> um, why has it not um, been removed? Well, there's evidence that it actually was 100 years ago cut right back and probably uh, 150 years ago in the middle of the 19th century, probably because of the pressure of population here that would have been... Uh, many hundreds more people living in the area looking for fuel to cut uh, for timber to build houses etc etc mm -hmm. and local timber was the, the source but it was never totally cleared because the ground is is very saturated um, it's it's essentially in the floodplain of the river sure. it, it frequently floods and just earlier this week we had a, a big flood a big torrential downpour and all the, the the river overflowed into uh, into the soil, and uh, so that could never be cultivated. Does that mean you get a particular kind of tree down there because it's so boggy and wet? Yeah, it favours those uh, wet soils favour uh, trees like alder in particular, uh, willow, and then some of the drier bits, birch, um, holly, and uh, a number of other species: ash, oak, um, cherry. And is it pretty much all native Irish woodland? It's all bar one species, um, uh, sycamore, which is an introduced species and very widespread in Ireland, of course, um, in hedgerows and, and woods and gardens. But uh, we've actually removed the, all the mature sycamores sure. in the wood. Yeah. Is there an intrinsic value to native trees over non-native trees? Yes, there is. Um, and the obvious one is that um, they've been in the country for many, many thousands of years longer than the the introduced ones. And so they've had time to evolve a relationship with, with other plants and animals. Uh, so to give you an example, oak, which has been here for 9,000 odd years, um, it has associated with it hundreds of species, um, hundreds of uh, lichens, uh, mosses, uh, insects, mollusks uh, and of course um, many of the larger birds and, uh, and and so on whereas something like sycamore or um, even more pronounced the conifers like mm -hmm. like sitka spruce might only have you know a handful literally you know a dozen species that would live off it it's not the species that it's associated with come from other countries sure 
and it's not a natural home to them basically that's right so so what, uh, have, what have you got down there then what species yeah what, what are the what are the what are your personal <laughs> top five favorite species that okay you okay well starting from the top in terms of evolutionary not uh, that it's good to have favorites though but, no yeah. no the the ones that are really characteristic of the woodland uh, that excite me are um the pine marten for instance which is a woodland um creature that um almost disappeared in ireland due to uh, due to the loss of its woodland habitat uh, and due in recent centuries to persecution because they were seen as, you know, they are predators and they, they were seen to take poultry, for example. Sure. Um, and so they were seriously persecuted and then and poisoned as well. They would often take uh, baited poisoned prey. Uh, so they retreated to the west of the Shannon and um, it's only in recent years now with the relaxation, you know, with the lessening of poisoning and, and persecution that they've recovered and they've come right back into County Wicklow and I've had them here in my woodland uh-huh. uh, so we've we've put up a, a nesting box for the pine martens in the hope that they'll stay and be part of the the fauna the permanent fauna here there was something I was reading in a wonderful book that I'll plug profusely throughout this episode um, I can't remember who wrote it though um, <laughs> that the return of the pine martens has also increased the red squirrel numbers yeah, well, indirectly, you see, um, uh, squirrel was one of is one of the natural prey of of pine martens, but they um, seem to be able to prey much more heavily on the grey squirrel, which is an introduced species, and much less on the red squirrel. And if you think about it again, it's it's probably logical that you know the pine martin and the red squirrel have been here since the end of the ice age. Uh-huh. And the red squirrel has evolved uh, techniques of avoiding the pine martin sure. uh, and spends less time on the ground for instance uh, more time up in the tips of the trees that the pine martin can't get at whereas the grey squirrel has only been in the country for a hundred years and um, probably got a bit of a shock when the pine martin appeared sure. and uh, uh, wasn't used to it but from its North American yeah. habitat and uh, has, is getting picked off so there's there's really good evidence now that where pine martins have come back in a big way grey squirrels have declined and hopefully that will benefit the red squirrel too. You, have you seen reds down there? No, we, not here, but um, we, we have had grey squirrels, all right, sure. but very, very occasionally. Okay. Yeah. Okay, you've got pine martens. What else have you got down there? Okay, well, in the bird line, I think my favourite would be the woodpeckers, the great spotted woodpecker, because, again, it's a returning animal. It's, it's one which probably there's extremely little evidence that it was ever actually in Ireland um, and you have to go right back to you know Bronze Age times um, when there some bones were recovered we've no evidence actually in in historic times that the woodpecker was ever here sure which is amazing that's one of the species that was really confined to Britain quite common in Britain yeah everywhere um, we've got a number of woodpeckers I think that's there's right. only one species present here that's right yeah but up to um, 20 years ago we had no woodpeckers here in the entire country and people always put that down to the loss of woodland over the centuries and the fact that the habitat wasn't here but there was a sneaky suspicion that they could be breeding in the country Uh and then um, in a sort of dramatic discovery about um, 15 years ago the first uh, nesting woodpecker in County Wicklow was discovered and um, since that time they've multiplied uh, extensively and they're all over the county now including in my own woodland and I had real excitement because I knew that uh, almost as soon as I 
um, started investigating the woodland, I could see the drill holes mm-hmm. that the woodpeckers were making in the trees. But, and I could hear them, of course, in the spring. I mm-hmm. could hear them drumming. They're hard to avoid, really. And, uh, but I was kind of perplexed because I couldn't find the nesting area and were they nesting at all. And then one day I was sitting quietly by the river and I was just listening to the water in the river and I heard this strange kind of repetitive noise coming from one of the trees. And I kind of had a suspicion then that I was listening to the young in a nest. Uh-huh. So I, I, I positioned myself under some ivy and watched this tree for, for a period. And sure enough, uh, an adult woodpecker came along and uh, its calling attracted the chicks and, and one of them stuck its head out of the hole and got a mouthful of, uh, of insects. And uh, that was the, um, obviously, the, the answer was breeding there. Uh-huh. So that's a, that's a species that wasn't native here that's come across, or perhaps was native a long time ago and has come back. Are there any species that are native to Ireland that we don't have in the United Kingdom? No. Um, <laughs> simple answer. Uh, we have a few subspecies. Um, uh, one of them, the, the coltit, for instance, is slightly different here. Okay. Um, the Irish stoat is slightly different as well. It's still a stoat, similar to the ones in Britain, but it's... Uh, got slightly different markings and so on. So it's been isolated for long enough here that it's developed a a different genotype. I think the Irish dipper is slightly different too. So there are several species, but uh, that's just just in the animal line. Uh, Where I live down on the Vartry, there's three dippers that live on that stretch of river who I go and sort of visit every single morning. The birds that have got me completely obsessed. I think um, Sam West described them the other day on Tweet of the Day as um, being like romantic uh, poets after a breakup, throwing themselves into the river constantly, which I thought was gorgeous. Yeah, they have this unique ability to to essentially swim underwater uh, and and walk on the bottom of the the riverbed and poke around under stones for um, things like caddisfly larvae and uh, dragonfly larvae and so on and feed on those. And there's no other bird really that does that because they're essentially a land bird. They're not a water bird. Mm -hmm. They look like a big fat black bird, actually. So what's your background? Did you grow up around here in Wicklow or like where did you start? Where did this obsession with nature come from? I grew up in Dublin and uh, I've never been able to answer that question myself (laughs) about his obsession with nature. But I think the first spark really came when I was at university and I was studying natural sciences. This is at Trinity, yeah. Yeah, in Trinity College in Dublin. And... uh, I was invited to go on an expedition to um, the Salty Islands off Wexford, where um, a friend was um, doing some research on seabirds. And as part of a group of unruly students, we went down and clambered over the cliffs and uh, counted the the guillemots and uh, the the gannets and uh, caught some of the fulmers and put... uh, uh, rings on them mm-hmm. and uh, and that really excited me and I thought maybe there's some future here so when I left college with a degree in natural science I was looking for a job that might sustain me in that area and uh, by chance I found a job a in the National Trust uh, working on a nature reserve it's a little wren yeah yeah, yeah it's interesting in hopping around in my wood store there you go. A source of biodiversity gets lots of insects in the wood store and you get your wrens right. to come and pick yeah. it out. It would be lovely if they would roost in there in among the, the logs because there's plenty of room. And uh, wrens suffer quite a lot from cold winters, so uh-huh. they do need um, warm places to, to tuck away for the night. Is that because they're so dinky? Tiny, yeah. yeah. I remember once um, 
cutting open a tree on uh, on the nature reserve where I worked. It was a fallen tree and I was cutting open a log. The log was hollow and inside there was a, a cluster of, I think it was about 15 wrens all packed together. They were all dead, I think, from the cold, you know, from frost. Sure. Uh, and uh, they were all sort of huddled together in a big tight bunch inside this tree. So it, that amazed me and it kind of um, underlined how these small birds can uh, can perish in cold weather. That's how the Germans named the kingfisher. They called it the ice vogel, so the ice bird, because they would find so many frozen little, at the end of the end of the autumn season, you'd yeah. find them frozen over winter, because yeah. they just couldn't find yeah, enough fish to eat. Several them. small birds like pied wagtails, which are dependent on insects, and they, they, they suffer badly in cold winters too. Um, you were telling me before that Wren rudely interrupted um, about going to work on a nature reserve, I presume. That's where we were headed. That's right, yeah. And uh, I stayed there for five years, and uh, that was very formative. I learned a lot of uh, new things um, about natural history and about um, the landscape and uh, about animals like seals, which uh, were one of the breeding mammals on the nature reserve. We had a big, big herd of harbour seals. And particularly I was interested uh, because... It taught me uh, techniques of management, conservation management uh, of coastal habitats. And that was another spark. Um, How long were you there? This was up in Dundrum Bay. That's right, right, yeah. Yeah, Yeah, I was there for five years. And um, I travelled a lot during that time around Ireland to look at other coastal sites in particular. uh, And became very interested in the whole area of, um, of nature management. And you went to the Arctic? Is that around there? I did. I was very I found a very lucky small footnote enough. that said you'd been to the Arctic, but I didn't know what you'd done there. Yeah, well, I, again, I was invited to join an expedition by um, a, an ornithologist who was studying uh, barnacle geese. Okay. And uh, these, these are geese which come to Ireland and Scotland in the winter, um, and then they fly back in the spring to nest in East Greenland. So... Um, my friend has been studying barnacle geese in Ireland for over 50 years now and uh, he decided to go to their nesting area and put together a team of uh, four ornithologists and uh, we were very lucky to go for five weeks uh, to East Greenland and uh, it's, it's, it's the experience has stayed with me for the rest of my life really because you know I often think for example when I hear the wind blowing strong I remi- I'm reminded of the wind blowing across the Arctic Sea and, and uh, over the ice. I've always wanted to go. Yeah. Um, one of the great things about my current job, which I might have to bleep out the, what title is, I don't know when this episode's going out, what's been announced, whether I'm a Viking yet, um, but there are so many Scandinavian actors in the show. Like There are people from Greenland, from Iceland, from Norway, Finland, Denmark. Yeah. Like They're all, all over the place. It's wonderful. Yeah. Yeah. And they've all heard about the podcast. And they say, well, you've got to come here and look at this species. Yeah. You've got to go here and do that. Yeah. Yeah. And so I'm sort of secretly planning this amazing trip around the Northern Hemisphere. Yeah. Iceland would be a good start, I think. It's, oh, it's a wonderful, uh, rich wildlife uh, habitat. But I think if I had any advice, I'd say go quickly because the Arctic ice is melting so fast that you know in another 10 years there may be a lot less arctic have you read um the book on time and water by andre mm. snare magnuson no so he's icelandic he's when i can go to iceland i will be interviewing him i've spoken to him already yeah that book is incredible right. it's all about heritage and his relationship with his grandparents and 
the fjords that existed in his grandparents' time compared to the fjords, the same fjords that he now sees in front of him and the change that happens over a human yeah. lifetime, yeah. but on a global scale. Yeah, yeah that's it's, striking, isn't it? It's an incredible read. Mm. Yeah, so I, I first discovered you reading your book, Wildwoods, um, which is about what you're doing here. And we, we've discussed the ancient woodland in passing, and I, I do want to go back to it because I want to talk about the badges before I let you go. Um, but you've also planted a lot of new trees here. Yeah, um, I think it's mostly oak. Am I right in saying that? There's some birch. Um, it's a mixture. Um, we have um, oak, birch, um, and uh, Scots pine and alder probably make up the the, the, the bulk of it. And uh-huh. then we have uh, about three or four other species, including rowan, cherry, wild cherry, even some crab apple mixed in. Okay. Uh, but they're all native Irish uh, trees and. Uh, Part of the thinking behind this is that we want to provide a buffer around the um, old ancient woodland uh, and also a bit of continuity between it and other patches of trees in the the surrounding landscape because most of our remaining woodland is just small fragments uh, scattered around the landscape and and often isolated. Uh, And many of the species, for example, the insects that live in woodland need need, uh, corridors and continuity of trees to, to, to move. And colonize new areas so um you know that was really exciting we about three years ago we assembled a a group of volunteers um there's a word you use in your book which is i'm not it's called mehel there you go that is not how i was going to try and pronounce it but there yeah. you go That's and mehel is um the irish word for a, a gathering of friends and relatives to help with seasonal tasks on the farm uh-huh. uh, so things like haymaking or planting potatoes or you know um, saving the crop at the end of the year sure. were, were generally done by a, a group of friends and neighbours um, and, and we used the same uh, the same approach and uh, attempted people with um, a nice lunch and uh, a day in the sun hopefully uh, planting trees and, and it, I was amazed by the uh, interest that people have because I think they go away at the end of the day feeling a satisfaction that they you know they've planted 50 sure. trees or something and they can come and look at those growing later and I, if they I, come back and see what they oh yeah yeah we've had people come back and 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 check their area of trees that they planted and they and secretly sort of scratch their initials into the bark <laughs> I don't know. against all best agricultural yeah, practices. But I get I get huge satisfaction from walking in among the young trees, and uh, some of them now are you know up to four meters high uh-huh. after three seasons, and uh, they're beginning to close canopy in a couple of places and shade the ground underneath, and that's really interesting to see that happening. If a community or a, or a meath meathole mehel mehel. Um, if, the, if, if, if a community plants a forest, the chances are that's going to help it survive across the generations as well. If you can keep people being enchanted, enthralled and active in a forest management, then yeah. that could be a better way to keep a forest in existence for much longer. I surely. completely agree because, you know, um, people need to have a sort of um, not only the the pleasure of looking at a forest but they they need to have a, a stake in it mm-hmm. and and the stake might be something just as simple as the fact that they put some hard work into it sure. um or or it could even be a financial stake that they they have so that they benefit in the long run from the use of the forest and 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 also the the sale of some of the timber from it sure um one of the sayings that always rings through with me is that you don't plant a tree for yourself but you plant a tree for your grandchildren mm. 
I mean, and is that how you feel? Yes, I do. And you harvest the trees that your grandparents planted for you. Sure. Um, but, you know, that kind of tradition has, has really died out now. And um, people want to see quick results and quick turnover. And it's one of the reasons why, of course, many farmers, if they're going to plant trees, they favor the, the short rotation, quick, mm -hmm. quick turnover uh, conifers. It's very hard to interest people in planting something that isn't going to produce a really significant harvest for 50 or 100 years. One of the things, I spoke to another Irish naturalist called Ainani Lamna, and she was saying how certain government schemes at some point supported farmers to plant some trees, but as soon as that subsidy, subsidy disappeared, they would then harvest those trees and get rid of them, and then any, any positive end result had been completely negated by that process. Mm. I mean, you've received some government support to plant the new trees. That's right. Um, Are yeah. they also trying to keep that going in the long term to try and make sure that yeah. not only you're getting the trees in the ground, but they're staying in the ground? Yes, indeed. I mean, that's the whole point of the native woodland scheme, which is designed to uh, produce uh, more native woodland that is permanent. Mm -hmm. um, but that doesn't mean you can't crop the the woodland sure. that you can you can uh, take timber from it um, discuss coppicing as being a coppicing being way one way um, and uh, thinning being another way you know because um, any plantation needs needs some thinning to allow the light to reach um, some of the more the stronger trees uh, and and the, the weaker trees are often taken out around it it's one of the greatest arguments against the modern wonderment of rewilding which everyone goes, well, you just leave it and it'll find its own way. But that's only if you've got the entire ecosystem in existence to support that. So you have some kind of grazing animal to, to keep the grasses back or some kind of apex predator to keep them back. And you can't just leave a forest to grow on its own necessarily unless there's the existing biodiversity infrastructure there to make it work. I think uh, rewilding re can work in... Uh, very large landscapes like say Yellowstone National Park which covers you know um, thousands of square square miles mm -hmm. um, but in a European context and particularly in Britain and Ireland where the landscape is divided up into very small parcels of ownership it, it doesn't make sense to try and rewild a small patch of a few acres when the neighboring land might be intensively farmed with um you know pesticides and and chemicals that are going to influence that woodland mm -hmm. then you have um introduced plants and animals all around which are you know potentially going to invade that area as well uh and you know we have the additional problem in in wicklow with a very high deer population which sure is not controlled as you say by any natural predators they've all been taken away do you think they should reintroduce the wolf or anything like that <laughs> it would it's a lovely idea but i think the practical practicalities of it are very large um problems such as um resistance by sheep farmers mm -hmm. and i really can't see it happening in my lifetime sure yes i mean in many european countries the wolf is coming back itself um spreading more widely now with less persecution but ireland's a small country and uh, unless they're good swimmers i can't imagine them getting here by themselves <laughs> maybe they could be carried by the the talons of woodpeckers <laughs> um going back to the fact that uh, one plants a tree for one's grandchildren one of the things that i noticed quite lovelily is like your daughter's called hazel your granddaughter's called ivy am i right in saying there's a rowan in there as well there's, there's a dairy as well who um is named after the uh, the irish oak wood yeah. I think that's wonderful. 
Well, we have several reasons for this. One was we, we loved the plant names. Um, luckily, my own children see the, the value in that. Um, and also, it's, it's kind of a neutral name as well. It doesn't suggest that you're part of one tribe or another. Sure. Yeah. Which I guess is probably quite important in Ireland. It is here <laughs> in this country, yeah. In, in terms of your children, you, one of your sons has gone into, agri, uh, into uh, forestry as well. That's right. He's um, just uh, qualified as a, a, a forest ecologist, actually. So he'll be working in Ireland um, on standard forestry, but also hopefully um, applying ecological principles to that so that uh, we get much more in the way of native woodland back. And your daughter Hazel's running a, what do you call it, community? Supported agriculture, um, so that they, she and her husband Davi have uh, developed a market garden which is uh, supported by the local community and um, supplies them with a regular box of vegetables every week uh-huh. um, and uh, it's working very well for them. How does, how, is that, how does that feel for you to know that at least two of your children, very actively in terms of their vocational choices, regardless of their personal preferences, have decided to follow in a natural historical path that presumably you set for them? It worries me a little bit because (laughs) uh, I don't like uh, thinking that um, I'm developing clones. (laughs) But on the other hand, um, it is good that um, we have a kind of a a thread of, you know, family interest uh, that seems to be carrying on through the generations. And... uh, my wife, Wendy, of course, has been an organic uh, gardener for 40 years and uh, is, um, is working on the market garden as well and, and passing on all her skills to, to the next generation. Are you seeing that there is a public increase in interest? It feels at the moment, I don't know whether it's just because I've got my feet very strongly entrenched in the environmental yeah. world, but it does feel like the world is becoming more switched on to organic, to, to community projects, to... Or is that just whimsy that mm. The Guardian likes to spread? I think it's it's true to some extent in this country, but I think it's still very limited and uh, needs a lot more of a boost. You know, just with the, the COVID and virus affecting us so badly, there's uh, definitely been an increase in the natural environment, partly because people have more time to, to, to listen to birdsong, to um, go out and visit their local... Uh, forest uh, but also because I think people need um, some degree of um, sort of stability during a period of, of huge unknowns and uncertainty and uh, nature can provide that kind of um, stability and consistency from one season to the next so you know while we were all wrestling with um, uh, <laughs> I think that's our wren as There's well. There's the wren back. We were all... Yeah, there he is up there in the corner. Yeah. All up and around. He's obviously found some food in here. Right on cue to talk about the influence of nature to help um, peace of mind and the like. That's right, yeah. I mean, birdsong, you know, is something that is incredibly relaxing. Uh, you can, you know, sit even in your own back garden and, and just focus on that. And it, it gives you a sense that you know nature run continues to run year after year and um, no matter what we do to it uh, it is quite resilient and 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 can uh, cope with all the kind a lot of the kind of pressures that we put on it in your most recent book you talk about how you suffer from seasonal affective disorder 
But you also talk about how you've been camping out in the forest of an evening or going out and cooking breakfast there some mornings. I, I presume I already know the answer to this, but do you, do you personally find that the natural world helps you with a positive mental attitude? Certainly some of the time. I think so. Um, and when, you know, the world gets a little bit too crazy um, or too many work pressures, I'll often just, you know, take an hour off and go uh, into the woodland. I, I feel kind of embraced by the the environment in there. Um, it, it cuts out a lot of the sounds in the surrounding landscape, like traffic or farm machinery. And, you know, I can hear the bird song, which is much more louder in, in the forest than mm -hmm. it is outside. Uh, and kind of forget about the, the, the cares of the world for a while um, and uh, really relax in that. And, and other people have different ways of doing it, but that's something that uh, works for me. Super. So there are three questions that I ask everybody who comes on the podcast. The first question is, if you could go for a walk anywhere in the world right now, where would it be? I think I'd go for the, the Amazon Basin because it's disappearing so fast mm -hmm. and um you know it's one of the richest um uh, ecosystems on earth um spanning the equator and uh having um many more species in particular endemic species that don't occur anywhere else than most other places on earth is so there anything particular you'd like to see there I think it's the it's the the trees themselves and the okay. the, the the sort of um, richness of individual trees um, and all the the plants and animals associated with those. Um, luckily, my uh, son-in-law Davi is is from Brazil and has offered to take me there someday. Did you make sure that Hazel married someone from Brazil to facilitate this trip for you? <laughs> Pure coincidence. <laughs> um, second question. Um, who is your natural history hero? <laughs> yeah, I think I go right back to when my first interest in the natural world was sparked. And this was by a man called Frank Fraser Darling, who was um, an Englishman, but lived in Scotland for a lot of his life. And during the war years, the Second World War, he uh, he started a farm on an old croft on an island off the west coast of Scotland and uh, he studied while he was there he studied seals and seabirds and so on and published uh, profusely a series of books uh, probably the best known one is Island Farm or Island Years he was one of my early heroes but I think if I can be allowed to choose a second one I'll, I'll permit it um, <laughs> uh, one of and probably Ireland's most famous naturalist was a man called Robert Lloyd Prager. Uh -huh. Interestingly, both of them had um, double-barreled names. Prager was uh, born in Northern Ireland and uh, spent his childhood there. And um, he moved to Dublin and uh, he worked for most of his life in the National Library. But he was a self-taught botanist who... Okay. Um, studied the plants of Ireland and he made it his lifetime work to identify and uh, map the distribution of uh, the, the plant life of Ireland and he really um, not, not only the work that he did himself and the publishing that he 
the books that he published, but um, also his organizational abilities. He, his most famous work, I think, was the Clare Island Survey, okay. um, where he organized over 100 naturalists from uh, the leading specialists of their day from all over Europe to come and uh, uh, com- do a complete in- inventory of uh, all plants and animals on the island of Amazing. Uh, Clare Island in Mayo. And he's doing the illustrations as well as just the scientific identification? Or? No, he, he wasn't an illustrator, but um, he was definitely an organiser. And uh, he, he was the instigator of the, the final volumes which were published. And interestingly, a hundred years later, the same approach has been taken by the Royal Irish Academy in Dublin, and they've done a second Clare Island survey and looked at the differences between them. One of the reasons, of course, is that being an island off the west coast of Ireland, it's about as remote from uh, the intensive land use that the rest of Europe has had. And you would expect things not to have changed that much, but they have actually. We're thinking mostly because of temperature shifts, because of partly climate, but also I think um, you know a hundred years ago uh, it was still recovering from the effects of the famine and sure. uh, a huge population. There was still a large amount of cultivation of potatoes on the island, and that's all ceased. In fact, agriculture has almost ceased on the islands. Okay. So you know things have changed dramatically, um, and then you have on top of that all the. Um, introduced animals and plants that have come in you know with with uh, the movement of people sure. and and it's a popular place for holiday makers and okay and the like yeah. final question if you could bring any species back from extinction what would it be <laughs> that's an interesting one because um you know the ones that seem to be mostly missing here are the large predators mm-hmm. and uh the ones that i suppose competed with uh, people for uh, food or for for their own uh, you know domestic animals and I think you know the birds of prey of course um, some of them have been reintroduced the yeah, they think the red kites are back now that's right the red kites are, are here in in numbers uh, we've over 100 pairs breeding in Ireland now uh, reintroduced from Wales actually and the the um, white-tailed sea eagle is back breeding breeding in uh, Ireland but I think there's one other species that could well um, move back and that's the osprey Uh, the osprey was reintroduced to Scotland many years ago Mm -hmm. very successfully it's even breeding in northern England now I believe Uh, and we have extensive wetlands still in the country uh, rivers and lakes that could uh, could hold ospreys I think it's only a matter of time before they do come back in themselves. Well, the amount of trout I've seen in the Vartry, it seems yeah. remiss of the osprey not to make a right. resurgence. Well, they do migrate through Ireland in spring and autumn, uh, which is uh, you know, interesting that the Scottish birds uh, come down in the autumn and, and move back up through, the, uh, through Ireland in the, in the spring from their winter, wintering grounds in Africa. So I think it's only a matter of time before a pair sets up here, yeah. Fantastic. Um, before I let you go, how are the badgers doing? I love badgers. I've always loved badgers. So the fact that you've got a set in the woodland is probably the thing that I find most magical about the whole thing. That's right. They're breeding successfully. Um, the set is in a, a, a lovely wooded slope on the edge of the woodland. It's, it's nice and dry. 
and they've obviously been there for for a very long time because there's about 10 main entrances and and they're all they all have huge heaps of of uh, spoil outside and so that there must be some extensive tunnel network and and chambers underground mm-hmm. my the best way i've found to watch them is actually using a camera rather than uh, being, uh, there being there because many times i've i've gone badger watching i've been disappointed because the wind was blowing in the wrong direction or because they heard me coming in or whatever um but with a camera set up there and and there's a, a, a trail cam at the moment uh, set up on one of the trees uh, i've had some fantastic uh, footage um uh, video footage of of badgers emerging um cubs playing outside the set um being dragged around the place by the adults <laughs> It looks so vicious, but you have to hope that it's love that is behind I, the grip that the parents I always have to be having their children. Like with our own children, we have to teach them the odd thing or two. <laughs> but um, yeah, it's 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 a learning thing. And um, but the the interesting thing is the cameras also captured pine marten going into the set. Uh huh. Into the set. In into into the mouth of a set. Oh, wow. There are rabbits there regularly, and I think the rabbits are actually sharing the set with the. Um, with the, the badgers and a fox uses it as well so it must be quite an extensive old set uh, so it has kind of um, west wings and east wings that can be used by other species and um, it's interesting to know what will turn up next that's amazing <laughs> fascinating well I can't wait to see some of that footage if that's possible yeah, I'll show it to you. Richard thank you very much that's hugely appreciated I hope you've enjoyed yourself thank you <laughs> oh the oak and the ivy Oh, the oak and the 